You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. And welcome to the 42 cast, your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. We have another great episode lined up for you today. We're going back to doing interviews. If you were following us back in episode 10, you might remember that we interviewed Michael and Mark Edens, who were two of the main writers for X-Men the Animated Series and ExoSquad. And through them, I met another person who was involved with both shows. And I've been on his Facebook feed for probably about a year now. For a while there, he was drawing the most beautiful uh, illustrations of characters. Characters I was familiar with in some cases, and some of them I believe were his own original creations. And just gorgeous women especially, but drawing various comic pages and other things that he was sharing on his Facebook page. And so... I decided to work up the courage and ask him to get on the show, and uh, he agreed. So I guess there's no point in me hiding who it is, because uh, his name will be on the title, and that's Will Minio. I'll introduce him again when we actually get to the interview. But it was a good discussion, and it's one of my goals to have everyone that was involved with both X-Men, the animated series, and Exosquad, or everyone who was involved in a major way in those two series on the show at some point. So it was really good to get Will on and to talk about his very big career that spanned many decades in animation and doing some comic work. So I really hope that you enjoy that. But yeah, there's not much more for me to say here. There won't be a five-minute controversy because we don't have a panel this time. So instead, before we get into the interview, we're going to pause briefly for a promo from another fine podcast. Hello? Hello? Hey, who's interrupting my intro? Is this a joke? This is no joke, kid. This is the Earth Station DCU Podcast. No closing anybody. Sickening. We're not that kind of podcast, kid. We talk DC news, comics, movies, and television. You gotta do better than that. We reviewed Supergirl, Flash, Legends of Tomorrow, and Arrow every week. That a fact. How much do I owe you? You don't owe us anything. The podcast is free. Oh, it's just I just heard this story in the cab, and it is all I can think about. <laughs> we are part of the ESO network. This is amazing. Why, thank you. And join us every week for another edition of the Earth Station DCU. Now, can we get back to the show, please?
And we're back. And like I talked about at the top of the show, I have with me Will Minio. He's someone that if you were growing up in the 80s and or 90s, uh, his name was on lots of different shows that uh, you probably watched while growing up. And so uh, I'd like to welcome you to the 42 cast, Will. Oh, thank you, Nathan. I'm glad to be doing it. And how are you doing today? Well, apart from having a little cough, which I apologize for, I'll, I'll try to keep that under control. I'm doing just fine. All right, excellent. So, yeah, I wanted to talk with you about your work in uh, animation and comics. Like I was mentioning uh, just a second ago, your name is one that I recognize just from, you know, sitting and watching TV. It happened to come up quite a bit. <laughs> In those days, just about anything that had a human being in it, I, I worked on as far as the cartoons. Yeah. So yeah, it was something that even as a youngster, not paying attention really to who was working on things, uh, just sort of sunk into my head. So it was something that I recognized, uh, you know, when I saw your name on Facebook, and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> and so I started looking up, you know, information about you and such. So uh, first off, what I want to ask about is um, Eric Leewald on his X-Men TAS blog. And I'm going to put this in the show notes. He posted a letter that uh, you received from Marvel Comics, I believe, in 1966. Yes. I was just the right age to be a Marvel fan from even before they were Marvel. I was reading the monster books. And uh, when Fantastic Four, uh, number one, and Amazing Fantasy 15 came out, uh, you know, I was there, bottom off the racks, although I missed actually did miss Amazing Fantasy. I didn't have a dime. I uh, read it off the liquor store rack, uh, <laughs> ran over to my dad's store, saw, got a dime from him. When I got back, somebody else had bought it out from under me. Mm. Oh, wow. That's that's really cool. So about how old were you when you wrote that letter? Uh, let's see, I would have been 15. And so is working in animation and or comics, is that something that you knew from a very young age that you just wanted to do? Yeah, I had a I had a pretty clear vision of it. Uh, I think you know, really, Marvel cemented it for me when they started giving credits. And uh, you know, you can say what you want about Stan, but it made it seem like working in comics would be fun. Mm. And you really got that sense that something special was going on, and they knew something special was going on. And it was aspirational for me, and I think a lot of other kids. You know, it's kind of hard to understand now because. You know, comics have become kind of an upscale thing, mm. you know, where they're so expensive that I think their old readership has been priced out. But when I was a kid, comics were one of the first things you could you could uh, own if you were a poor kid. Mm. You know, you could generally squeeze out a comic every once in a while, uh, you know, as soon as you could accumulate a dime by hunting for bottles or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at the generation of people uh, my age who came into the business, they mostly came from rural or poor urban routes. Yeah, I think that that's true, even if I recall correctly, uh, what I've read about Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, even before your time, that they came from those kinds of roots as well. Yeah, it was very, again, for for most of us, it was it was something that looked doable, it was aspirational, like, you probably knew that you couldn't be Wally Wood or Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko, but, you know, there was Paul Reinman and there were some other guys that you thought, well, you know, I could do that good. Yeah, and I felt that, I thought it was nice that they actually took the time to write back to you. Oh, yeah, I mean... Uh, and again, this is one of those things about Marvel in the early days, uh, because they were a small company with very few people, and the you know they'd almost been out of business like five or six years before. Mm -hmm. uh, they actually took an interest in their fans and realized that you know, along with what they were doing creatively, the fact that it was being acknowledged by people 
uh, was keeping them in business. And they were really quite nice to their fans then. I, I have read some of the old letters pages and some of the uh, PDFs that I've gotten to hold of those old uh, comics. And it does mm-hmm. seem like that they were very fun and they like to make jokes and things like that. Talking about the distinguished competition, meaning DC, so D, you know, distinguished competition. I always thought that was funny. Oh, yeah. Um, and again, it just like those days, if you read comics and you were past 10, you were something of a freak. Mm. But uh, Marvel was something special. And when you run into other people who read Marvel, it's like, aha, you know, they, they've got the secret language, too. Right. <laughs> yeah. Nowadays, of course, you know, most people who read comics are, you know, probably 15 or older, you know, <laughs> going into their 20s, 30s and whatnot. So it's definitely changed. I, I do think that's one of the long-term problems facing comics is just they, they've lost a method of getting an, an install base for them. Mm-hmm. You know, where because they're harder to find, uh, you have to go to dedicated retailers. They're losing that entry-level audience. And I don't think the movies are driving audience to the comics the way that TV shows used to. Yeah, um, I mean, uh, just getting a little bit ahead, I will let you know that the whole reason I started reading comics was the X-Men cartoon in the 90s. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, well, I'd done stuff for Marvel Comics in the 70s. And then when I first got into animation, one of my first storyboard jobs was on the Thing cartoon. Mm. And, you know, they'd done it just as the stupid comedy series. And I complained to Alex Lovey, who was the producer, that they were kind of missing the point of the Marvel Comics. And so he had me talk to the story editor, and I tried saying, explaining to him that, you know, when Stan said this could be funny, what you should be looking at is Spider-Man. You shouldn't be looking at Hanna-Barbera cartoons. Because even though you're off on the actual premise of who the thing is and all that, if you did something that felt more like a Marvel comic where, yeah, he was a teenage kid who could change into this monster and dealt with it that he viewed it as both a problem and a gift and did it in a more realistic style, everybody would be happy. But of course, I was just a kid, and so they shunned me. <laughs> <laughs> And so at that point, I just thought, you know, if I ever get in a position where I'm producing and directing and I get a chance to do a Marvel show of my own, I'll try to make it faithful to the comics. Yeah, that, that is something I want, definitely want to follow up on uh, in a little bit. I wanted to ask you also, though, uh, what were your other influences besides Marvel? Well, Marvel, the serials, uh, science fiction movies. Hmm. Uh, when I was a kid, I... I read a lot. I'd, uh, I'd originally been thinking of being a writer more than an artist. And like on summer vacation, I would set myself goals of reading five or ten books a week. Mm. And so we had a little local library in the town of Othello where I grew up. And I read through the library over the course of, you know, like four or five summers. You know, anything that was detective fiction, genre fiction, uh, biography, uh, you know, I read just anything that interested me, and I actually read all the books in that library that were of interest to me. And were there any uh, series in particular that drew you in? Well, in the late 50s, early 60s, the Ed Grice Burroughs books got rediscovered. And so I was a big Ed Grice Burroughs fan, and all the people who did Burroughs pastiches, like Otis Adelbert Klein, and even Lynn Carter and those guys, I, I really enjoyed. And then Doc Savage, The Shadow, The Spider, all the pulp reprints. And so they they were all tremendously important. And when I was younger, uh, things like the Tom Swift Jr. books were wonderful. And a lot of libraries used to carry them because they were hardcovers. 
How did you transition from, so here you are as a teenager, you're interested in comics, you got a letter back that kind of, sort of, it wasn't very encouraging, I would say. Well, yeah, and again, when you when you look at what they're saying, uh, to their minds, like the last time there'd been a superhero cycle, you know, really the core of the superhero cycle was from about 1941 to maybe 1945 or 46. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure they thought that it was a balloon that was going to burst any any day, any second and I think they thought that comics pretty much had had their day and that it was just a cycle again. And so I think it was sound advice based on past experience that maybe you could do something better with yourself. But, uh, but that said, after when I started thinking about it, I could always draw. And it occurred to me that if you can draw a person or draw a hand, it's not subjective about whether you can draw or not. Uh, where writing is all subjective. When you submit stuff to an editor... Uh, you know, it's up to somebody else seeing that you have skills, and they're such abstract skills, you know, you don't know if you're going to be judged fairly. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to transition over to art. But uh, at that point, like, I tried a couple of times to get writing from Charlton, and I actually had a premise that Dick Giordano had hung on for, for two years, and I had a nice letter from him saying, you know, if we'd kept in business, we would have done a book of this. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. And so it just broke my heart. But, you know, obviously he never called me when he was at D.C., so he might have just been being nice to a kid. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. So you decided to go into art, and so um, where did you go from there? I mean, what did you, uh, did you you go to college, or did you start uh, trying to work uh, somewhere? Well, when I was in high school, I I met the love of my life, my wife, Jo, who, you know, has been a comic book colorist and color stylist on a few animated shows and things. We were were 17 when we met, and... When we were 18, we got engaged. We got married when we were 20. And I went ahead and just took a job at a jack-in-the-box as the night manager, just so that we would be able to afford a place and all that. And so I was working there and trying to get work done. But, you know, it was just grueling to actually have time to draw after working 50 or 60 hours a week. And uh, finally, at jack-in-the-box, I had falling out with my manager. And uh, I was so mad, I tried to unionize the place. <laughs> and so I got fired. And when that happened, my mom stepped in and she goes, you know, this is a waste of your talents. Why don't you and Joe come live with me for a couple of years? Uh, we didn't pay for you to go to college. Uh, I'm happy to have you stay with me for two years while you try to break into comics. I just expect you to draw every day and try your hardest. And so that's what happened. We stayed with my mom about uh, three years and I started selling stuff. Nice. Your mother's an amazing woman <laughs> for being well, that. Well, she was. Yeah. I mean, she, uh, you know, she, she was, uh, I think, the valedictorian of her class at Randolph-Macon, and she was a big member of the AUW. And, you know, my mom and her friends were a huge influence on me, uh, you know, as Joe has been, where, you know, I, I had the good fortune of being surrounded by strong women all of my life. So you started selling your work. Uh, is this when you started getting like uh, the jobs from Marvel with like Howard the Duck and uh, Marvel Team Up and all that? Well, I'd done a few uh, kind of things that you would call ground levels, or it was it was an evolution where I started placing stuff in markets that either didn't pay much or didn't pay and just get paid in copies mm-hmm. uh, from about 1971 to about 1974. And then Marvel did that stunt where they kicked up all their books to being 35-cent books for a couple of months. Mm-hmm. And I looked at it and realized that they were short on content, 
and I analyzed what features I thought they would be giving their own strips. And Tigra had just been in Giant Size Werewolf, and I thought there's a character that's going to get some traction. And so I did three Tigra sample pages, and I thought Nick Fury was out of a book just then. They might do Nick Fury. So I did a strip with Nick Fury, uh, The Thing, and The Human Torch as another sample. And I thought Guardians of the Galaxy was likely. So I did Guardians of the Galaxy and Kazar. And so I sent in my samples. And as was then the case, you just send stuff out. And it was like sending it out into a black hole because they had a slush pile, you know, like hundreds of samples deep. I didn't hear from anybody for about five months, and then I just got a call out of the blue from Tony Isabella and John Romita saying, you know, we're going to do Tigra as a strip, and we need a new artist to do it, and we went through the slush pile, and you have the best samples of the character, would you be interested? Yeah, wow. yeah. of course I was, right. and so I, I was told just to hang tight, I'd have a script in a couple of weeks. So I waited a couple of weeks, no script, waited a couple more weeks, no script, Waited six weeks, and I'm starting to doubt my sanity that I'd ever heard from them. And so finally, I got my courage up, and I called Marvel, and, I, and they routed me over to the bullpen. And I go, uh, can I speak to Tony Isabella? And they go, oh, Tony's not in right now. And so they just hung up on me, and so I thought, well, I'll call back in a couple of weeks. I didn't want to be pushy, you know, being a shy country boy and all that. And so I called back in a couple of weeks, and the same thing, oh, Tony's not here, and they were laughing and having a good time. And it turns out what had happened is Tony had gone over to Atlas Comics, you know, the 70s version, mm -hmm. and was doing strips like The Grim Ghost over there. And when I saw those books started to come out, I go, oh, gosh, I guess Tony's not Marvel anymore. I guess it's like it never happened. And so I was just feeling really sorry for myself. And then one day out of the blue, I get another call from Tony. Hey, Will, we're ready to start Tiger now. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was about probably six months from the time they told me I'd get a script till the time I actually did. And so I got an issue of Tiger, did it. And then I didn't hear from them for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I got another script along with a copy of the fill-in issue that Frank Robbins had done. And I go, you know, your staging could use a little work. Look at this Robbins stuff. And so I just killed myself to improve myself on a second issue that I did, which was uh, Marvel Chillers 5. And it was markedly better. And then they gave it to Coletta, who inked it over a weekend and kind of destroyed a lot of the artwork for me. And so that was kind of it for me and Marvel then. And I got a nice letter from John Romita saying, hey, you know, there are a lot of people here who like your stuff. Don't be too disheartened. But there are people who don't like it. And so I think I'd recommend that you practice a little more. Try again in six months. And so I did in six months, sent them some new samples. And the person who I shall not name, but my friends know who it is, sent me this rejection from Marvel. It said, you know, these samples are too good to have been done by you. Oh. Oh, and so offensive. I thought at that point, probably my career as a comic book artist was over. But life has a way of having odd little things come up. And then a few days later, I got a phone call. It was from Mark Evanier, my future partner on DNA Agents. But he was editing a line of Tarzan comics for Europe. And he said that he'd seen my pencils on a second issue of Tigra before they were destroyed. And he needed somebody to do fill-in issues with Korak because Dan Spiegel was too busy to do them all. And so that's where I started my relationship with Mark, where I would uh, I'd do every other Korak story for a little bit of time. And I did a couple of Tarzan stories, and Dan Spiegel didn't like drawing covers, so I would comp covers for him sometimes. And so that was just a great experience. And then uh, I was so excited to be suddenly gainfully employed doing comics and drawing my favorite characters like Tarzan and Korak. And the line had been successful enough in Europe that there was talk of expanding it, like doing Pelucidar and Kerchak and Jane. And I thought, wow, 
maybe I can get my own book here someday. And they were going to announce uh, U.S. publication of their titles at uh, the San Diego Con. And I think this was probably in 77. And I remember we had a panel scheduled and all of us on the West Coast and working on the books were there waiting for the announcement of Burroughs Publishing. And just before the panel, I saw Danton Burroughs and Roy Thomas go into a side room and I just go, oh, this is not good. And so our panel was canceled and it was instead announced that Marvel had made the licensing deal to do mm. Tarzan. <laughs> <laughs> and so, again, another heartbreak. Yeah. Well, Mark Evanier has always been a good friend, strong advocate, and, uh, you know, uh, one of the reasons that we're still friends after being partners for all the years is just Mark is a great guy. And so... Mark tried to get me in the loop for things like uh, he was uh, working on some strips for a comic book to be published in Japan by American creators by Sanrio, the Hello Kitty people. And so he did a strip for that, but the project just never gelled, you know, where I don't think the book was ever released in Japan at all. And they wound up, uh, Don Morgan had done a strip about these little elf creatures that was popular enough with the Sanrio execs that they based a movie on it. And that was printed out in some other Sanrio magazine, but the rest of the stuff never saw print. And after that, it was kind of a bit of a dry spell. And then Star Wars uh, had its effect on Saturday morning. And what had happened was, because Star Wars was such a hit, Sony Networks wanted superhero shows and action-adventure shows and science fiction-themed shows. And Hanna-Barbera found themselves uh, shorthanded of people who could draw people. And Mark had been turning in a script script i think on dynamut or one of those shows uh you know the cartoon version and one of the producers don jerwich uh who's later on one of my mentors uh stopped and goes you know mark you you do comics on the side and he goes yeah he goes do you know any artists on the west coast that could come in and help us we just we've sold too much stuff and we don't have people who can draw superheroes and so mark called all of us who've been working on the burroughs comics and i i was so excited and i was away from my desk, I didn't write down Don Jerwich's name. And so I cold called Hanna-Barbera switchboard and I go, hey, I hear you guys are looking for action adventure artists on some of your shows. And the receptionist go, goes, well, do you know who you want to talk to? And I go, I don't know. Could you tell me who the producers are? So she named off Don Jerwich and Doug Wildey. And of course, I knew Doug's name from Outlaw Kid and from Johnny Quest. And so I go, oh, I'd like to speak to Doug Wildey. <laughs> and the rest was kind of history where um, I Doug invited me in and hired me and I started doing assistant layout work and then uh, Doug took me under his wing and made me his assistant for a few months while I was working on the Godzilla and Janna the Jungle shows. So when you say doing assistant layout work, what does that mean exactly for a layman? Oh, okay. Well, when cartoons were being done in the States, uh, you do a storyboard and then somebody would take the storyboard panels and blow them up and sort out what levels the art would be on to go under camera. Like uh, in those days, like a lot of times you'd have a torso and the torso wouldn't animate, but an arm would, a mouth would. And that and the layout guy would do a relatively nice on-model drawing of the scene that had the camera moves planned out. And so sometimes uh, you'd, you'd have a scene and it would just be a close-up with the mouth working. And as a layout guy, you weren't worried about the mouth, but you, so you just draw like a nice shot of the character. And if it was going to be a sky background, you just put in a sheet of paper, say, say color card background, daytime sky. And then other times, like on Godzilla, you get a scene where it'd be like Godzilla fighting a monster in a temple. And suddenly you'd be doing a scene that had, you know, dozens of drawings. 
And one of the stupider things I did <laughs> was the uh, first couple of weeks that I was working on Godzilla, I was living in Barstow still, and I would commute in, pick up my work and stuff. But, but the first couple of weeks, they asked me to come in and work in-house every day. So I did, and Rick Hoberg had started the same day as I had. And so we got to be friends, we were hanging out. And so we were in the bullpen, and people would give us stacks of layouts, and we thought it would be fair to go every other one. And what happened was we were working on storyboards by Sherman Labby, and Sherman had a very particular rhythm. It would be close-up, long shot, close-up, long shot. <laughs> and so by going every other one, I was hanging myself with all the long shots, and Rick was doing all the close-ups. And so Rick was doing like twice as many layouts as I was. And I was going, God, I'm failing. I don't know why I can't go as fast as Rick. And then when I looked at how the scenes were sorted, I was like, oh, my God, I've taken all the hard ones. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so when was this that you started? Uh, this would have been 1978. Okay. So I know that um, you at least worked a little bit for Marvel after this because uh, Marvel Team Up 98 is uh, like a, like I don't know, 84, 85 uh, comic. So, uh, how did that come about that you uh, did some more work for Marvel? Well, well, actually, that's that's not eighty four, eighty five. It's more like seventy nine, eighty. Is it? Yeah, oh, my, my brain uh, is just not working. <laughs> the reason I know that, <laughs> okay, is because um, a couple of years later, when I started working at Marvel Productions on Spider Man and his amazing friends, I had up a Xerox with a splash page from that issue on my cubicle, and this was before I'd met Stan Lee. And Stan came back because uh, he was excited about how one of the storyboards had turned out that Larry Rick and I had done. He was talking to us, and he saw that splash page on my desk. He goes, oh, you did this? And I go, yeah. And he goes, well, come talk to me. I, I need some help on the Spider-Man newspaper strip. And so that's how I happened to end up ghosting the, the newspaper strip for a couple of weeks uh, in the early 80s. Oh, cool. Yeah, I don't know. For some reason, because I, I, I thought Marvel Team Up 100 was a 1985 date, and I don't know why I thought that. I know it had a newer incarnation of the X-Men, so I thought 98 would have only been a couple of months before that. I'm going to have to look into that, but anyway, that doesn't really yeah. affect what yeah, I want that, to talk about. That's how I know that was before 1982 sure. anyway. Sure, sure. So how did you get to do the uh, Marvel team-up issue? Well, Marv Wolfman had moved out here, and uh, and he had been one of the people who was an advocate of my work when I was at Marvel, and when we met, he goes, well, would you like to do an issue of Marvel team-up? And so I agreed to do it, but at that point, I didn't realize, you know, how much time I was going to be spending on animation. And so that Marvel team-up issue just took me forever to get done because I was doing it, you know, weekends and evenings after putting on long hours at the studio and doing a commute that took about 40 minutes each way. And that's when I kind of realized I had to put comics aside for a while because I just couldn't be dependable doing comics while I was, uh, you know, doing storyboards and character designs and things. Yeah, I, 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 just as a small note, I looked up uh, where I was mistaken. That's because the issue I thought was Marvel Team Up 100 was actually Marvel Team Up 150, so that's why I'm off by a few years. Yeah, that'd be like four years, so yeah. <laughs> right, yes, so okay, now I understand. So you got into the animation industry just uh, after Star Wars came out, so 78. Mm -hmm. and uh, you were working on the layouts. So how did you go to directing, producing, and, and the, the other kind of work that you were doing in animation? Well, the first thing that happened was when I had initially interviewed for, for the Godzilla show with Doug, uh, he had some presentation storyboards by Sherman Labby up on his desk, you know, because he'd had a client meeting before I came in. 
I was looking at those on the, I'd never seen a storyboard before. And I go, Doug, what are these? Uh, that, that looks really interesting to me. He goes, well, those are storyboards. You know, they look simple, but they're really, really hard. They're, they're probably the hardest thing you can do in this business. And I said, well, that's what I'd like to do. And he goes, well, learn layout first. And once you learn the camera mechanics, I'll test you out on some storyboards. And Doug was really a wonderful teacher and mentor. And he was true to his word, and he started giving me like quarter acts of Godzilla to storyboard. And it was clear that that was where my aptitude was more so than layout. And so Doug uh, brought me in to the executive part of the studio to work as his assistant doing storyboard corrections and handouts and things like that. And so I learned storyboarding, a combination of my own intuition and working directly with Doug, who was one of the best guys of his generation. And so, and so from there, when Hanna-Barbera finished their slate of shows and I got laid off, I interviewed over at Filmation and they were wrapping up Flash Gordon and had just uh, lost a staff guy. So I got to work on the last few episodes of the 70s Flash Gordon cartoon. And you know, while I was there, uh, they realized that that you know, I had editorial capabilities, so they made me a department head on their action adventure shows, supervising storyboards. But as I was working on them, I got tired of working in Filmation's stock system, and my friend Larry Houston had gotten work at Marvel Productions on the syndicated Spider-Man's and Spider-Man and his amazing friends, and they lost a storyboard artist for personal reasons. You know, he had some family issues that he had to quit, and so they were desperate to have somebody. And Larry mentioned to Don Jurich who I'd worked for on Super Friends that I would probably be interested. And so it was like, yeah, work on Spider-Man, get paid more and not have to do the stock system I'm in. <laughs> and so, so I went over there, there and that was really one of the best times of my life because the whole in-house Marvel art department was Larry, uh, Rick Hoberg, Dick Sebast, Russ Heath and I, and we did everything. And it was really, it, it was such a great learning experience and so much fun just hanging out with the guys. And so anyway... Uh, there was a point where there was a big animation strike. I think this was in the summer of 1982. And I was kind of feeling a little disenchanted with animation in general. And I thought, well, maybe I should take a stab at doing comics again. And I'd seen Dave Stevens work on Rocketeer. And, and uh, it got me thinking, maybe I should try doing a comic. So I called Mark and we thought we'd, we came up with the idea of doing a pitch. And that's what became DN Agents. So we sold DN Agents. I worked on DN Agents and Vanity for a couple of years. And then I realized that the independent comics just didn't make enough money to support living in Los Angeles. So I started doing a little freelance for Marvel. And when I went back, I realized that if I was going to be allowed to produce and direct, to produce and direct, I had to be uh, aggressive about getting it. So I was just selling my, started telling people that uh, I wanted to produce and direct my own stuff. And because they'd first known me as a young person, they didn't take it seriously. But I got in a position where the clients that were coming in were asking for me by name to do their projects. And so I finally just had out with the head of the studio and said, look, you have clients coming in who want my work on these shows. And a lot of times it's spoiled by people who don't understand it. And so if you want me to stay here, uh, you're going to have to start letting me direct my own stuff. And it worked. And they uh, maybe uh, the producer of the Gem Music videos, because I done the gem title which was kind of like a breakthrough at the time and i'd done uh two of the gi joe titles and everybody that was coming into the studio wanted that guy who'd done the titles for them oh nice and so so it was it was kind of a risky thing but there there was a problem for like larry and rick and i in that they always thought of us being the young guys because in 
animation, there'd been a gap because there'd been some really rough years in the business in the 60s where people had been unemployed and a lot of people had gotten out. And so there were either people who were you know, like 10, 15 years older than us or after we got in there, people five or 10 years younger than us. And they always grouped us with the guys who were younger than us because relative to the people they've been doing business with, we were young. And so I think we all had to you know, go about it in our own way, but we really lobbied hard to get control of our uh, work. With storyboarding, I know you said that it was the, the hardest thing that you could do in animation. How much freedom do you get with storyboards? Do you get told, like, we want a storyboard where it shows, you know, X, Y, or Z, or are you just given, like, a section of the script and said, we want to have the storyboarded out? You know, can you draw the, the, the scene so that we can sort of visualize what it's going to look like? Well, it varies by the situation. I think in those days, uh, like, for example, when I was working on G.I. Joe, the people at Sunbo got that that I was bringing more to it than was in the scripts. And so uh, they just told me, you know, whatever you want to do, just do it. And that caused some hard feelings later on with some of the writers. But, <laughs> you know, uh, I just hear the client asked for me to do what I did, and so I did. And, and uh, I think now that the studio system has changed where everything's more more clo- more likely to be run by writers that you're not going to see the kind of kind of situations you had that allowed me and Larry and Bruce Tim and some of the guys of our generation to have as much control of the project as we did. Well, yeah, I mean it's one of those interesting things because when you read about how Marvel became what Marvel is, it's by Stan basically giving a very loose outline to the artist and the artist, mm-hmm. you know, giving getting a lot of freedom, a lot more than they got at the other comic companies to you know, create, you know, the, the story. And then Stan would just come in and do the, the words. Yeah. And so, and also I think because I'd originally been, had an interest in writing, I'd read a lot, lot more stuff. And, you know, over the years I've written a lot of presentations. I've written a few animation scripts because later on my, in my career, I realized that people didn't realize I actually wrote stuff. Uh, and so I started getting it written into my contracts. I get one or two scripts on anything I produced just because so it would be on record that I wrote this, I wrote that, I wrote that, and that I had the capacity to edit scripts because after Marvel shut down, it was a little bit of a problem that people didn't understand that even though I was an artist, I still could do more. One of the things that I noticed when looking at the the work on Wikipedia is that you had to be working on a lot of these projects concurrently because they were series that were around at the same time. So was, oh, yes. was that unusual in the industry or, or were there a lot of people doing that sort of thing? Oh, uh, well, I think the, the business has always been somewhat unstable. Uh, the economic reality of it, particularly those days, is that let's say you did 65 episodes in a, in a year of a series. When those were done, uh, they would have to air for three years to uh, make money and so so you'd end up in this boom cycle or be followed by a bust as the studios tried to make back the money they'd invested in the shows because every time you have an old show hogging a time slot there are episodes not getting produced that you would have been working on and so everybody i think was constantly aware that at some point the work was going to run out and so almost everybody was working like dogs i I remember right before there was that big animation studio implosion uh i don't remember it was 86 or 87 uh the remnants of the gi joe crew the gem crew the transformers crew and the robocop production we were starting up uh we're all sharing space in this uh 
two-story building that had like a like a courtyard in the middle and the artists were all up on the upper level and so like sometimes you'd hear the phone ring in one person's office and they would turn something down and hear it ring in another's office and hear it ring in another because there was such a shortage of manpower it was just hilarious like if i would say i wouldn't do anything then you hear larry's phone ringing or vice versa larry's phone would ring and i turn it down then they'd phone the next guy hmm. uh, yeah it was just it was a crazy time and that was the, the time when most of us my age suddenly had the income to buy cars, buy houses, you know, do the things that normal adults did that didn't work in the arts. Right, that's understandable. So you went into directing, um, and you were also producing some series. So this is one of the, again one of the things that I, as a layman, wanted to know is with directing when it's an animated show you know rather than something live action or whatever. Do is that something where it's strictly talking about? where you're strictly looking at what the animation is, or are you also going with the vocal talent and coordinating the, the voices and how the voices line up with the animation and looking at different takes, or how does that work? Well, uh, titles are just titles. It varies all over the place. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes a director will have the option of following a show all the way through, other times not. Okay. But generally, as a director, you're responsible for getting the show shipped overseas in good good shape, having it tracked, checking the, the exposure sheets, uh, making sure the storyboard works, making sure the designs work. And in the old days, that title was also applied to people who were producers, you know, where you had where the two titles were more or less interchangeable. A producer at that time had more prestige than a director. And so your goal was always to be a producer, director or a you know, some kind of supervising or executive producer so that people understood that you were the one who had control of the production. Uh, and so I, I don't, isn't very helpful, but, but the titles really are just what the circumstance makes of them. Okay. Also, just as a quick aside, I see on the list in Wikipedia that you worked on Jurassic Park. Is that the movie Jurassic Park, or was this some... No, no. <laughs> okay. no we, <laughs> we, we did an ill-advised animated pilot for it at Universal, and uh, what had happened was uh, Spielberg and, uh, knew, knew that they were going to be starting DreamWorks, uh, but he played his cards close to, the, to his vest. And so when Universal asked him if it would be okay if we developed Jurassic Park, he kind of said, well, make something and we'll look at it. And so uh, working with one of the big effects houses, uh, we did kind of a state-of-the-art uh, partial CG Jurassic Park animated trailer that was about... I think a minute and 15 seconds and it was really really nice but when we finished it Spielberg was over in Europe uh, working on a project and he just never found time to look at it and then of course a few months later they announced DreamWorks and it's like oh well of course they want Jurassic Park for DreamWorks but the but the pilot is up on YouTube where you can see it oh okay interesting I'll put that in the show notes for this episode so now we're going to get to one of the shows that I really wanted to talk about which is X-Men uh, I see that you first worked on Pride of the X-Men before the, the 90s Fox series, but I just wanted to know how you got involved in animating X-Men, and again, uh, a little bit of just questioning about, because it says that you're a supervising producer on X-Men, and so exactly what your role was in developing the series and, and all of that. I, Eric Leewald did mention in his blog that there were a lot of hurdles to overcome in, in getting X-Men uh, onto the screen, so I'm really curious about all that background with it. Oh, okay, well... First of all, we, to understand where X-Men come, comes from, you have to go back to Pride of the X-Men. And Pride of the X-Men uh, was 
sort of interesting because before the syndication market collapsed, Marvel and New World thought they could find the money to do a 65 half-hour X-Men syndicated series, and that would be a toy-driven series like G.I. Joe or any of the others. And so uh, Stan wanted to do it uh, like the old Marvel comics where we started out with just a premise and the guys would go out and board it. And so uh, Rick Hoberg, Larry Houston, and I were picked as the team on it. And then Russ Eastwood was picked to help with models. And so it was the four of us working together on it. And I had originally pitched a story that is the basis of what became Night of the Sentinels, which was itself a variant on the first issue of X-Men where a new character comes to the team, they have an adventure, and that's how you learn learn the thing. And that was what Pride was supposed to be. It was supposed to be with the X-Men fighting the Sentinels so that you could show what Wolverine does, what Cyclops does. And everybody had liked that original premise, and we started doing designs and storyboards based on it. And then Marvel hired a new toy guy, and the toy guy goes... You can't do this with the Sentinels. You need to introduce Magneto and all the evil mutants. And and I was horrified. I go, but we can't do that. You know, you won't be able to show what the X Men do. You you have created a story that's way too complicated, introducing too many characters. And uh, they pretty much said, just do it. And so so we uh, took the bones of that script, gave it over to Larry Parr, who did a fairly nice job on this on a script from it, given the limitations. Uh, but it was crippled by the fact that it was trying to introduce 20 characters in 22 minutes. And so everything was cru- was crowded and rushed. And, you know, it was just, uh, it was too bad because we had the animation by Toy and uh, Taiwan that was really first rate and nice and possibly the best TV superhero animation to that time. Uh, but it was ruined by a script that was, you know, at once too complicated and too stupid. <laughs> right. So how did that then proceed to, you know, moving forward with another series and just a few years later? Well, well, what had happened is Margaret Lesh had been the president at Marvel Productions when they were doing that development. And she had she had liked the fire in my belly and the fire in Larry Houston's belly. And she kind of let people who were interested in doing the show know that she would be more likely to pick it up, pick it up if they had Larry and or me. And... Uh, I was back at Marvel then uh, doing development work and stuff after I'd done Ghostbusters and Captain Planet. And I was very unhappy with the New World management. Uh, and I was ready to quit. And I kind of got invited of, invited to a lunch by Jim Graziano and said, look, I'm leaving Marvel. There's a chance we get X-Men. I already have Conan. Are you interested in, in bolting with me and see if we can get X-Men? And so I thought, yeah, I hate these guys. I don't want to work for them. And I certainly don't want to do do X-Men for them. And so I went over to Graz with Jim to do Conan and then to try to land X-Men. And then I phoned Larry and said, look, Larry, can't promise this is going to happen. But if we're both at Graz, I think we can get X-Men over there. And you'd be the one running it day to day, and I'd be like the overseeing executive on it. And Larry decided to go with us and turned down some other offers. And so he took the chance that he's going to end up just working on Conan as a director with me in order to try to get X-Men. And so with both of us there, uh, you know, the rest is history where uh, Margaret also liked Jim Graziano, the head of the studio, and Stephanie Graziano was an executive at Fox. And uh, the combination of our four sets of, t- of charms uh, pulled the project in for us. Was it difficult, even though you had the project, to get it made the way that you wanted it to be? Oh, very much so. Uh, the very first big meeting we had on it, you know, like I was there, Larry was there, Eric Leewald was there. 
uh, I think Mark Edens was there, Bob Harris was there, and then there was Stan and a bunch of people from Saban. And prior to the meeting, the Saban people had kind of cornered Stan, gotten into his ear and said, look, you know, to make this show, we need to make it like a TV show. We need to make it cheap. Uh, we, we want to do a show that's about two guys in a van uh, looking for mutants, might be a dog. And Stan, it was desperate to have a show and kind of agreed that that would be okay. And so they laid out that show to us. And, you know, all of, all of us who were comic fans were horrified. And I forgot to mention Sidney Iwanter, who was the, the Fox exec on X-Men, who was also a comic fan, also got it. And we took a break. And Sidney, Larry, Bob, and Eric and I got together. And I just said, we can't let them do this to the show. Ever since I've been working in TV, people always mess up the Marvel properties by not having faith in Marvel. Uh, we need to replicate the Marvel experience. And they go, well, what can we do? And I said, well, I'll tell you the storyline of what I had originally wanted to do for Pride of the X-Men. Let's pitch that. And so... Uh, I outlined the thing about new member comes in, they fight the Sentinels, we set it in contemporary settings, and and so we kind of fleshed out that we wanted to do the real team. And uh, there were enough of us that we won the argument, I guess. And, and then we, that, that, was, that was the first of many battles with Marvel about being faithful to their own property. That's, <laughs> that's ironic. Uh, you have to remember, in context, uh, just, I think, about two years before, uh, I was doing Ghostbusters and Captain Planet and had a really good relationship with ABC and with the Turner Networks. And uh, Jim had called me saying, look, you know, Marvel wants to do a Captain America and the Avengers show. And I know that you've always wanted to do Captain America. Would you ask ABC if they'd be interested? And if they are, would you do it? And I go, well, yeah, I'd definitely be interested. I'll ask about it. And when I, when I gave ABC a little pitch that, hey, you know, there's... Marvel's willing to fund a Captain America show, uh, and I'd love to do it if you guys would be interested. And they just laughed and they said, you know, that Marvel stuff, we've seen it a zillion times over the years, it doesn't have any value. And so after, you know, 10 years of rejections in the post-Spider-Man era, they would do anything it took to sell a TV show. And they didn't realize the reason that none of their shows had been hits was that they weren't faithful to being Marvel things, where the more they made them like a generic TV show, the more likely they were to fail. And so throughout the process, uh, Marvel kept trying to make it more like a TV show and less like a Marvel comic. And that's where things like my having that letter from Marvel in 1966 and having my old Marvel, Mary Marvel Marching Society card <laughs> came in handy because... There was a day when we got a letter from Marvel executive saying this was the worst thing they'd ever seen. It was totally unlike a Marvel comic. And I, I wrote him back point by point saying, this is where you're wrong. And pointed out that I'd been with Marvel since I was a child. I understood it forwards and backwards. I could tell them what issue everything had happened in up till the time I was about 19 or so. And if they could match my knowledge of the characters, I'd back off. But if they couldn't, I'd appreciate it if they did. <laughs> I assume they backed off. They did. No. <laughs> Did Marvel ever insist on something that you had to do that uh, you didn't really want to do? Oh, yeah. They, they backed themselves into a corner with a fast food deal. I think it was with McDonald's in Australia that they had these god-awful uh, big-headed figures and badly designed car toys. And this was one of those crucial moments for the show where I got a call from uh, uh, one of the Marvel reps on the West Coast saying, you have to put these in. We've promised them. And I said, well, send them over. I'll have a look at them. And they were just like trash. And I said, no, uh, we will not put these in the TV show under any circumstance. 
and uh, it got to the got to the point where we had a stalemate for a few days. And he finally said, look, we're going to have to do something if you want to put him in. And I said, look, uh, this is an FCC-regulated show. I'm not going to accept a, mem- a memo telling me I have to stick these in. And you can talk to Fox about it, but I will not put them in. And so uh, that night I got a call from Jim Graziano, and Jim says, you know, Will, uh, Marvel's threatening to pull the show from us. If you hold your ground on this, uh, do you really think it's worth it? And and so I said, yeah, you know, because if we cave here, we'll have to cave on everything. And they've been asking for really stupid stuff, like the characters to use X-Men walkie-talkies that have Wolverine and Cyclops heads. They've been asking for us to have X-Men sheets in the bedrooms. Now, if we give the ground here, we're going to have to give up on everything. And this is where I really credit Jim, or a guy running a studio. Uh, he really had balls. and said, well, if you feel that strongly about it, we'll go to the mat with you. And so... By staying together, uh, we prevailed. And that kind of set the tone of the production that they knew they couldn't just push us around to do whatever stupid piece of bidding they had. Did you work closely with uh, Bob Harris on the the series, or was he fairly hands-off other than being out at the occasional meeting? Well, he, he dealt more with Eric. You know, Eric was the story editor, and uh, I think Bob understood it enough to know they didn't understand the animation process, but he did know the script process, and so he paid close attention to the scripts and usually interacted with Eric. One question that I've always had about the series, and I don't know if this would have fallen under your department or what, is that the Storm voice actress changed after season two. That, that happened after my time. Okay. Like, uh, like I'd done, I'd, uh, helped, I'd helped with the first season of X-Men, and also I think it's important to distress like on the first season I was the supervising producer because I was also doing Conan at the same time and Larry you know like I I had a lot of input into the overall creative of the show and I did a lot of script notes and I would occasionally do storyboard notes or I'd help out like when there was a political problem but you know Larry carried the weight of the show that year while I was you know I was actually a supervisor concerned with the politics in the overall flow of the thing and so when I left you know Larry just took over the show and it was just it was fine all the all the political stuff had pretty much been solved by then and i think he had a he had an easier time than he might have but uh but what happened was nobody knew x-men was going to be a hit and so all of our contracts were up after the first 13 were delivered and um and so uh they made a deal to keep me on retainer to help oversee the post on x-men to keep me available but i also got a uh a call from Universal offering me a chance to produce the Exo Squad pilot. So I did the Exo Squad pilot, fell in love with it, and I thought, this is really the show I'd like to do. And then, uh, as Eric mentions in his book uh, previously on X-Men, uh, the second season, uh, Saban had to cut the budget on the show because the first season, uh, they had some backing from Polydor for the for the videotapes of the episodes and the second season, you know, they probably lost fifteen or twenty thousand dollars an episode, and they had to figure out where to save money. And they kind of gone, well, you know, we can afford one producer. And I go, well, you know, I've got I've got Exo Squad, and this show is really Larry's passion more so than mine. So I'll be I'll be happy to go do X Men Exo Squad, and Larry can run the show of his dreams. And that worked out fine for all of us, you know, where I got to do the show that I'd always dreamed of, which was Exo Squad, and Larry got to do X Men for as long as he wanted. Uh, I will tell you this, I still feel like that first season of X-Men is the strongest season of all, so... 
<laughs> take that for what it is. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really enjoy that. I think part of it is it's more focused. It had stronger continuity. Uh, and I feel the same about Exosquad too. When we did 13 of them, it's a lot easier to be hands-on with 13 than 65, or, or in the case of Exosquad, 52. You know, when you're doing 13 and you're doing one every 10 days, it's way different than having a big mass of them. And and you have different story concerns, different art concerns. And, and so, yeah, but when I look at the later seasons, uh, you know, like the Phoenix saga and things are just amazing. I mean, they're really some good shows. And I was kind of sad I wasn't involved with them. Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely X-Men had other great episodes. But I feel as a whole season, that first one was the con- consistently good in a way that the other ones might have like a bad one here or there. Yeah, you know, kind of thing. Oh, yeah. But, but again, it's that thing, like when you're doing 13 and also, um, <coughs> again, because of, pardon me, because of the Polydor money, they had a little bit more money on them. That makes sense. One of the things that you had talked about before was about, you know, and especially with Marvel was sort of trusting the series and not uh, necessarily writing down and you're trying to have good, consistent stories. But I feel like animation in general in the 90s started becoming more where I would say it's for general audiences rather than being for kids. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that as to why that might be that, you know, not just the shows you were working on, but other shows too. It seemed like that that was a movement going on in the 90s. Well, it was. And I think it was uh, like the people of my generation coming in who were heavily influenced by the comics. Like You you see the seeds of it in the 80s with shows like G.I. Joe and Ghostbusters, where suddenly the writing is getting more sophisticated. And and when you look at the camera work and things, uh, everything kind of opened up. Uh, like I remember when in the early 80s when we were working on Spider-Man and his amazing friends, uh, Larry and I were both early anime fans and we'd see shots and we'd want to replicate them and people would say you can't do that. And so you'd have to bring in a tape and show the directors how you achieve that effect and what it looked like. And that was the start at Marvel of us opening up the camera to where we could do the things we were doing later in G.I. Joe. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it was just a shift of focus where the people who originally were doing TV animation uh, viewed it as a job of, out of necessity, where they had, you know, originally worked, a lot of them originally worked on, you know, theatrical cartoons and commercials and things that paid better. And, and TV was sort of like the port of last resort for them, where for people my age, it was like, wow, I can make a living doing this stuff. Uh, why don't we do it better? Right. Oh, that makes sense. So yeah, moving back to uh, Conan, which you were working on at the same time as X-Men, how did that come about that, you know, you got a hold of Conan and were able to get the Howard Estates uh, license there to do that? And and how did you get to working on Conan? Well, well, again, what happened was I was working at Marvel uh, on things like Little Shop and uh, Siegfried and Roy Pilot and things. I was pretty unhappy there. And and Marvel was very much infested with New World executives then. And uh, in my opinion, so I don't get sued, they were the scum of the earth of the entertainment business. And I just hated being there. And uh, Jim had been approached by Sunbow that they wanted to uh, start uh, producing shows again. And they had the rights to Conan and My Little Pony. And would Jim be willing to set up a studio to do it? And that's how Graz got formed. But one of the things they asked would be, uh, again, from past relationships, did he think that I might be interested? That I might be interested in coming over and doing Conan for them because we'd had a long relationship on Gem and GI Joe. And so when the opportunity of doing Conan free of Marvel came up, I was like, 
yeah, I'll do that in a second. And so uh, that's how I wound up over at Crowds doing Conan was just I was invited. So were you part of, or so they already had the Conan license? They already had the property and and I think they already had the toys in pretty heavily in development. But uh, it's kind of strange when you're dealing with toy companies because a lot of times they have secrecy that doesn't always help their production when it's, when it's uh, cartoon production. Uh, because originally I was told that Conan would be like a young guy, like 17 or 18, when he's just starting out. And I did a piece of presentation art for the shows, which, what they, which was what they sold the show with. It was a picture of a very young-looking Conan holding his sword up. And we had background designer to kind of present a looking background. And I had Rusty think it, and it really looked nice. And then when I saw it in the trades, uh, they'd gotten freaked out about the idea of Conan holding a sword, so he's just standing there with his fist up. And that was the first of my art woes with Conan, because I kept thinking they wanted, like, the thin, lithe 18-year-old before he got to be that big brawler. And I had Russ Heath on to do models with me, and so we kept doing sketches, and we kept bulking him up, bulking him up, bulking him up a little bit. And they kept going, oh, that's not quite big enough, that's not quite what we had in mind. And, and uh, then I was getting so frustrated, I went to a toy store, and I saw that Hasbro was doing uh, these hideous little deformed-looking wrestler figures. And I go, I wonder if this is what they want. And so I drew this ridiculously bulked-up Conan <laughs> uh, with a stupid look on his face and had Russ clean it up. And I thought, they'll never take this. And sure enough, that was exactly what they wanted because they already made molds based on the popularity of the wrestling figures. <laughs> I see. And that gets me to another thing I wanted to ask you about is how much influence do the toy companies have when you're working on these projects? Well, it depends. Uh, in that case, you know, Hasbro was probably funding the show through Sunbow. So I suspect they had uh, a lot of influence, you know, but we always got our notes through Sunbow. Oh, okay. So, yeah, because I was curious if there was ever like a time when the toy company said, well, you can't do X in a show because, you know, we feel like it would hurt toy sales or something like that. But you, you wouldn't have gotten that note directly. You know, later on, like when I was doing um, uh, G.I. Joe, uh, a G.I. Joe video movie, uh, Valor versus Venom, uh, then Hasbro was actually producing that. And so I would go to Pawtucket and have meetings with the Hasbro guys and it would just It'd be so funny. You go in and you thought you have stuff resolved, and it's like, oh, well, we're thinking about doing this build a build a vehicle kit thing. Could you stick a scene with that in it? Or oh, we decided to discontinue this this skew of vehicles and characters. Could you take them out? And so, <laughs> and so when they started funding stuff directly and producing it directly, it, it was a whole another thing where you would hear from them all the time about their constantly changing needs. And how much uh, control over the storyline did you have with Conan? Uh, none. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and that was one of the things that appealed to me about X-Men, was I decided that Conan, I didn't, you know, it wasn't wasn't bad, but wasn't the version of Conan I would have wanted to do. And so when we did X-Men, that was one of the reason, one of the ways I took it was I just said, look, I'm, I'm to my eyes, we're screwing up Conan. I don't want to screw up X-Men the same year. Uh, let me do what I want on X-Men. What would you have liked to have done with Conan? Well, the thing was, it was so dedicated to the toy line, and then the design ending up being the bulked-up version rather than a young-looking version of him and things. Uh, and then he had the, the magic bird that was just cartoony and inappropriate for the show. It was just little things like that that, uh, you know, they, they made the show skew younger than perhaps it should have. 
how do you feel about because i mean obviously if you tried to do a version of conan that was very true to the robert e howard literature that would be very dark and (laughs) you know mature for children I, I think there's a middle ground. You know, I think like if you look at what Russ Manning did with Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan, you know, the Burroughs, the Tarzan books are actually very grim and adult, a lot of bloodshed and things. But when Manning adapted them as comic strips, uh, he made them uh, less gruesome and more, you know, child friendly without compromising the integrity of the character. How do you feel about uh, violence and uh, you know depiction of of darker themes in animation? Well, it depends. I mean, you still have to remember that, you know, if you're doing something to be aired in a children's time slot, you have to be aware that children are, are watching it and be responsible about it. Uh, you know, I, I am troubled by uh, cartoons that, that feature marquee characters like Batman and Superman that have blood and broken necks and things in them. Um, but, like, I think Exo Squad was my exploration and uh, Jeff Siegel and Eric's as well about... Uh, how violence should be handled, you know, where uh, you had people dying and, you know, sometimes it was heroic, sometimes it was tragic, but we didn't shy away from the fact that it was a war and people would die, uh, but we gave reason for things happening. And that's a perfect segue to talking about ExoSquad. <laughs> and so you already talked about how you got started working with ExoSquad. And so um, I know that uh, originally it was you, Eric, Jeff Siegel, I know. I think Eric was not involved with the second season of yes. Exo Squad. Uh, Michael and Mark Edens came over also to work on Exo Squad. So on the creative side, um, I know that uh, the Edens brothers were working on the scripts. But did you have input into the storyline? How the storyline progressed? Uh, yeah, you know, when I got there uh, to do the pilot, my first meeting, they gave me like one of those big studio binders that holds like three or 400 pages of stuff. And they had, had story ideas. They had a whole fleshed out backstory of the universe and what had happened. You know, Jeff and uh, Kelly Ward and I think Ralph Sanchez and a couple of the other guys that were already there as executives have worked on it and done a brilliant job. When I read it, I couldn't believe that this was like the show I'd been waiting to do. And where it had gone off the tracks was Playmates had had originally giving the, given them the designs for like JT's E-Frame and Alex's E-Frame. And I just loved them. They were so funky. And over a year and a half of development, they were kind of starting to shy away from those and in favor of just a generic Sid Mead-looking type robot. And so at the first meeting that I had on it, I thought, well, if they're going to hire me, I don't want it to look like this. I want it to look like this. And so I just told them, you know, I think... Uh, stylistically, you guys have gotten off on a bad tangent that won't serve the product. Well, this these Playmates designs actually are unique. You know, like you'd never seen anything like JT's E-Frame, and they're evocative of a different world than if you go with the generic look that everybody else is using. And uh, I guess they liked the fact that I was willing to take a stand on something and get the get the show going in a direction. And so as we were going into script, we would have meetings discussing what we should do for the storylines. And I was involved in saying this should happen if this happens. And as the scripts would come in, uh, I was able to give detailed notes on what I thought would have to happen to help the continuity and also help with the character development. And, you know, Eric and the Edens brothers and I, having had a good relationship from X-Men, everybody took it well. And, uh, you know, we had a good time working on it together. 
And, of course, the great tragedy of Exo Squad being that it did not get a third season. Oh, yeah. Well, it, uh, you know, Universal syndication uh, arm was not a giant in the children's business. And uh, they just didn't understand the market. And they thought just clearing the show was enough. And it didn't matter what the time slots were. And unfortunately, uh, when, one of the things Jeff did when we started having ratings triple when we went daily, we've been, we've been pretty successful as a weekly show. But when you go daily, the audience is different. Because you're getting people getting ready to go to work, go to school, all that. Or on the weekend, it's people who have leisure time and they'll wait around for your show and do appointment television. But not so much the case during the week, where you have to have the show on at a time your audience can find it. And when we went daily, uh, most of our audience, being older, wasn't up at 5.30 or 6 in the morning. They would get up later. And so our numbers started falling and Jeff did a breakout of the ratings and in markets like Los Angeles and I think Dallas where we were on at like 7.30 we were getting the same numbers that uh, Warner's and you know Fox Kids were but he put us on at 4.30 in the morning and the show was tanking and so it, it, again it was just like one of those tragedies of people who didn't understand the business uh, taking the show out. Yeah, because I mean, I never even heard of Exo Squad until I saw it in the second run on the USA cable network, where it was on, yeah. I think, at 10 a.m. So that was a convenient time. And so I was able to see it. But uh, and that's how I fell in love with it. But yeah, I mean, if it played in my local market, which was South Carolina at the time, I have no idea when it was playing because it yeah. was not at a time when I was watching TV. Well, and then the other thing that happened was that Exo uh, came out at that time when stations were transitioning away from having children's programming in the afternoons. You know, the for a long time, the news divisions of the networks and the TV stations had been covetous of that afternoon time uh, to take it over with news. And that, and that transition was happening, and so there just weren't as many time slots in the afternoons, and so there weren't as many places to place the show. And so, uh, again, it was kind of poor timing on the, on the part of the studio taking out a syndicated show just then. So what do you remember, if anything, of what the third season would have held? Well, we, we, never, we never actually got that, that far when, when we were doing the first two. I, you know, we'd all had some informal discussions. And I know at one point, uh, I think Eric, either Eric or Michael, wrote a treatment for a potential third season. But the gist that I think we all accepted was that it would be about JT trying to reunite with the other EXO members who were stranded in the other dimension and forming an alliance with the pirates in the peacetime. And then the other thing that had happened was Playmates had acquired the license to the Robotech toys. So there were Robotech toys appearing under the ExoSquad license. And so uh, at one point, Carl Maychuk and I were discussing maybe there would be a way to put a deal together uh, doing an ExoSquad Robotech crossover because when you think about that last shot of the giant spaceship coming overhead while JT's stranded in space, you could kind of almost tie that to the, to the Zentradi uh, invasion in Macross. And so we kicked it around a couple hours and we happened to see Richard Salas at a convention and the two of us went over and pitched it to him and he goes, now nah, Universal doesn't want to do it. Universal doesn't want to do any more Exo and we can't do it without him. And so that was the end of that little, little ray of hope for the project. I think I saw an anecdote that you had mentioned on Facebook where you said at one point Universal wasn't even sure they could make Exo Squad because of licensing issues. Yeah, what it was was uh, 
uh, you know, those lovable people at Marvel uh, taking a keen interest in ExoSquad because I'd left their only hit TV show ever to produce it. And so they were constantly trying to catch up the property where we had to change some of the character designs and things on at Marvel's behest because they thought it looked a lot like X-Men to them. And then we, we, we kind of dealt with the Marvel stuff. And then Acclaim had been publishing a comic called, I'm not sure if it was Acclaim or Valiant at that point, but they were publishing a comic called Exo Man of War. And they wrote to Universal's legal department saying, hey, we have this property, Exo Man of War, and we think that you're infringing on our intellectual property by having people in exosuits with the name Exo in the title. And so Jeff and I got a call over to the Black Tower where, you know, the executives and legal department is saying that we might have to shut the show down over this letter from Acclaim. And I kind of said, are you guys crazy? And I go, no. <laughs> I go, you, you realize that you own a property since 1978 called Exo Man. And they go, we do not. <laughs> and so the lawyer had a copy of Leonard Malton's book on the shelf. And so I pulled it out and opened it up to Exo Man Universal 1978. And you just never saw a bunch of guys snap on their heels and become vicious so fast. <laughs> <laughs> and so a claim went away. Yeah, that's a great story. I, well, that's why I wanted you to tell it is because that's so funny. <laughs> but the upside of that that was kind of interesting was after that, when the legal guys, even though uh, I'd embarrassed a couple of them by pointing out something, a couple of younger guys, again, uh, got it. The, I was an asset, and so they started calling me to, and they would have intellectual property issues with genre fiction. And so uh, that was kind of a nice part of my association with them, so being able to consult a little bit. Oh, that is really cool. It's when uh, watching a lot of television and film actually benefits you in life. <laughs> oh, yeah. And in those days, I, I didn't have a photographic memory, but, but I had a phenomenally good memory for for genre stuff. And uh, and it's served me really well over time. Uh, and that's one of those things that, that even though through the course of my life, I've had kind of a you know, a tortured relationship with Marvel. You know, it's a one-sided love where I love them, they don't love me. Uh, but my love of their material uh, kind of fueled my whole career because it got me interested in the whole genre of this kind of fiction and reading reading out the, the precedents for it and all that. And all that reading I did when I was a kid of comics and books and pulps paid off when I was an adult because... In almost any story situation or almost any creative situation, I knew what would work. You know, that's a really great message, and I'm glad that you're saying that on this show, because I think a lot of us, a lot of people who will be listening to this, and myself included, you know, we're told a lot when we, that, you know, all this stuff, it's nonsense, right? That, you know, you're wasting your time. Why are you reading comic books? Or, you know, uh, why are you so heavily into science fiction? I know it's something I heard a lot from my parents when I was growing up. Yeah. And, you know, I need to be more well-rounded. I need to read, you know, works of literature, not so much science fiction, which I did read works of literature. But anyway, yes. but I, I'm glad to hear you say that, you know, this, this is beneficial. It can help you. And, you know, that it's, uh, you know, that if you know what you're doing, you know, you can you can make a career out of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, and of course, you know, you can't downplay luck, you know, where you know, sometimes, you know, you know, I've through the course of my life, I've had several lucky breaks that I know not everybody got, you know, like when I submitted my my samples to Marvel uh, later when I was talking to John Romita, uh, when I was at Marvel Productions uh, working on Spider-Man show, he goes, you know, at that time, you know, it was before FedEx and before Easy Deliveries. You were the only person we ever hired from the slush pile. 
And it was just, it was that combination of, I saw the opportunity when they'd expanded and knew that they would be offering some of these other characters uh, strips, and I guessed the right ones that they were going to do, but also it was the good luck that when they went through the slush pile, there was nobody better that had done a sample on it. And, uh, and so there's luck, there, there's some skill in finding your opportunities for luck, and you need both. After you worked with ExoSquad, after it went off the air, are there any projects that you feel really strongly about that you would like to talk about? Well, one of my favorite ones is is one that you can that you can see a few videos of on YouTube and things. But uh, Jim Benton, who is now a best-selling children's author, created created a show called Spy Dogs. And when Captain America's pilot series got canceled, uh, they gave me Spy Dogs to fill in the schedule. And Spy Dogs is, I think, really a good cartoon. It, it's good, funny writing. And like we got a review in Hollywood Reporter that pointed out that the writing on the show was as good as anything that had been done in prime time in the Get Smart type genre. And I'm really proud of that show. Uh, you know, it had a really different look because we stuck close to Jim Benton's illustrations and Jim and Mike Ryan and Dave McDermott. And I just, you know, all clicked. And and as a bonus for me, I was able to get Adam West and Mickey Dolan's cast in it. <laughs> and nice. one of my favorite things in the show is uh, I only had time to write one episode of it, but the one I wrote was a musical. And so I... I did shower singing versions of eight songs, and the Saban music department, uh, you know, came to my rescue and made them really nice songs. And uh, two of them are performed by Adam West, and two of them have Mickey Dolenz performing on them. And it, it's just a treasure to me to think back. If you can imagine how wonderful it was to write a song and have Mickey Dolenz sing it. Yeah, no, that is really cool. And how long did the show last? It it lasted two years, okay. but uh, but it's one of those unfortunate things where when we started doing the show, Fox Kids' stated goal was that they wanted to beat Nickelodeon in the ratings. And the year that Spy Dogs was on, the, that I was producing and directing it, um, it was the only show on their schedule that beat Nickelodeon shows. And so we got picked up for a second season, but grudgingly, because it was such a unique property, the merchandising guys couldn't figure out how to sell toys of it. And so without the merchandising income, they decided it wasn't worth it. So they did nine to have it to fulfill their overseas contracts. And I'm not sure the other, the second nine that were produced by Mike Jens ever aired in the States. Oh, that's unfortunate. But, but it's really a nice show and it's lost because uh, it's now part of the Disney library and they're just not interested in it. Yeah, that's when I think about Exo Squad. You know, I've seen before that, uh, you know, Jeff's tried to get it, something started with it, and that Universal's not interested in that show either, which is sad. I've actually been approached uh, by friends at reputable video companies who wanted to get the video rights to it and uh, turned them over to Universal, and uh, they never heard back from them. Mm. So, are there any other projects that you're really proud of that you'd like to talk about? Well, let's see. We there was the Captain America pilot. I mean, one of those great heartbreaks where it's funny. I remember reading articles about it that it was going to come out soon and everything. They even had like I think a few still images uh, in the article that I read, uh, and and yep. then yeah, then it never happened, and I never knew what happened with that. Well, what happened was Marvel was in bankruptcy, and uh, there's a really good book about this called Comic Book Wars. And if you want to understand what was going on with Marvel in the mid to late 90s, read Comic Book Wars. It's it's just, it's a it's like a white-knuckle reader if you were involved working with them, because you can see all the flip-flops. 
And what happened was that Avi Arad was running Marvel when we initiated Captain America. And then uh, one weekend, the court came in and said, well, you know, we think the Carl Icahn guys might be the better management team to pull the company out of bankruptcy. And so suddenly, Avi and all of his guys are out. And we have these new guys. And the trouble is, the new guys have to prove that everything that Avi and his crew did was incompetent. And so they they t- managed to torpedo uh, both the pickup of Silver Surfer and Captain America by just being impossible to get anything by. I spent one of the worst Christmases of my life where we had a week and a half uh, break where I was over at the Marvel lawyers every day with the writers trying to come up with a form that we could save Captain America with and still keep Fox on board and things. And it was just impossible because their real goal was to get the show torpedoed to prove that Avi hadn't done the right thing by authorizing it. And uh, and it was something I read comic book wars because sure enough, uh, one of the things that they talk about back in March is the, of that year was that Avi was concerned that yes, they would torpedo all the TV shows. And that's exactly what they did. Yeah, because I remember being surprised that Silver Surfer ended where it did it as well. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. But that year, you would have, if not for that, you would have had Silver Surfer and Captain America on Fox Kids. Hmm. Anything else after uh, the Marvel period that uh, you would like to talk about? Let's see. I, 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 I did um, that GI Joe movie, Mar- Valor vs. Venom, that I enjoyed, and I did. Uh, I directed part of uh, Ultimate Adventures two. Which I think is kind of interesting because those uh, MLG movies that were a, a collaboration between Marvel and Lionsgate uh, actually have a lot of the story elements that you see turning up later in the actual Marvel movie universe. And uh, Craig Kyle, who is one of the writers on them, you know, has has made himself at home in the movie business. And so if you're interested in sort of seeing some of the gestation of that stuff, uh, I think it's worth watching Ultimate Avengers and the Iron Man movie they did and things. Oh, okay. And let's see, apart from that, like I illustrated a couple of children's books I'm very happy with. Like I did a version of The Boy Who Cried Wolf and a version of Pandora. And uh, then as I, around 2007 or so, I realized that I could just about retire. And so I just, I started tapering off and uh, officially retired about five years ago. So how do you feel about uh, all this, uh, this Marvel entertainment that we have nowadays between television, film and everything else? Well, it's fascinating to me because uh, you know I I love the Marvel movies. I mean, they're they're the movies I waited for when I was a kid. The the Marvel ABC show, you know, uh, Shield. I just can't get into. Inhumans, I don't really like. Uh, I enjoyed the first uh, two seasons of Daredevil, and I like Jessica Jones and Luke Cage. But they're so dreary in their tone that they ultimately lost me. Uh, you know, where Daredevil, I thought, was really brilliant for what it was. But there's just, they've committed to such a dark universe there that in the end, I didn't find it as entertaining. Um, and and so I've kind of lost a little bit of interest in them. And then with the DC shows, I prefer them to the Marvel shows, but they, uh, they, they're they kind of redundant in their writing and pacing. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, where I... I love them at first, and now occasionally I I will sample, but I'm I'm not a big repeat viewer on them. I have to say, the thing that surprises me, you talked about redundant writing, is when two different DC shows that are produced by the same company, it's Berlanti, will have the exact same storyline the same week. 
of the same kind yeah. of villain or something like that where i'm like do you guys not have people in your office talking between the shows so that you don't do this you know well they're they're doing so much stuff i imagine they're just hanging on for dear life <laughs> you know like what are they doing now they're doing like four hours a week yeah oh yeah it's four because yeah right when when supergirl uh leaves then legends comes back so yeah it's five shows yeah. but four hours a week yeah yeah it's just uh, you know it's a crazy amount of work and and as we discussed like in relation to exo squad and x-men it's harder to have a uh, good quality control the more episodes you're producing at a time you know it's uh, one of the things now that i'm retired and i have time to sit down and watch things that I'm finding really enjoyable are the British mysteries and the Norwegian mysteries that are generally finite series where they do between four and eight episodes and it's one writer, one team of writers, it's one or two directors and they're so solid because they have a uniform purpose and a common vision that you don't always see with American shows. Yeah, I've uh, there are a lot of people that feel that way that you know American shows really ought to scale back and follow more of that British model because you get a lot more focus on the series where when you're trying to do 22 a lot of times the seasons feel like they're kind of all over the place yeah because uh, you know even though it's not a superheroic show uh, like if you're a fan of anything I, I really recommend Detectorus it's just a brilliant comedy about two guys who are into metal detecting but they get totally into the psyche of why people do things for for hobbies and the writing is brilliant the acting is brilliant and it's just like this lovely tribute to people and their hobbies hmm well that sounds interesting so now that you're retired are you working on any projects as a hobby well yeah i've started uh publishing books through amazon uh my my first few efforts have been. Uh, do you remember Monsters to Laugh with? That was a comic. That was a uh, magazine that Stan Lee did in the '60s. That was revised revived in the '70s, uh, where you take uh, monster pictures and add funny captions to them. And so I've done I've done three of those kind of books now. One about the cliffhanger serials, uh, one about monster movies, and one about science fiction movies. And there's a compilation of them, and they're available on Amazon as both ebooks and physical books and then one of the things i've come to realize is when i was a kid in the 60s in addition to comics uh the other really significant thing that happened for fans was the advent of themed magazines like famous monsters spacemen screen thrills and famous monsters was such a big thing inspired a bunch of other genre magazines like modern monsters and Oh, gosh, forgive me, I'm drawing it like a mad monsters. And none of them have been reprinted, and the companies that printed them are out of business, and they've slid into public domain. And so in the case of Modern Monsters, I've scanned two issues of them in high resolution and added some color commentary, and I have those available as ebooks only because you can't duplicate the production technique. I don't think they'd be worth printing because they're off of pulp. And, uh, you know, the scans, even though I've scanned them off of original books, there's only so much restoration you can do, and I think they look fine as an ebook, but I don't think they, they're worthy of being printed again. And so I have uh, five issues of uh, what I call must-have magazines of the 60s that features spies, spoofs, and super guys, uh, two issues of Modern Monsters, first issue of Mad Monsters, and the only issue of 3D Monsters. Very cool. And they seem to sell pretty, you know, they sell like two or three copies a month, and that's kind of... I view my being a uh, digital publisher as actually a hobby because I don't think I'm ever really going to make any serious money off it, but it's just kind of fun to have books and magazines coming out. 
Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I'll uh, create links for those and uh, put them in the show notes as well so that anyone that's interested in your work, it'll be really easy to go from the podcast episode to looking at. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, no yeah problem. and uh, if anybody's interested, like I have an author's page on Amazon where you can where you can link to all of those. Oh, okay, perfect. That'll make it easy. All right. Well, Will, uh, thank you so much for taking the time today. I know we went a little bit longer than uh, what I'd originally told you, but I, I enjoyed getting an insight into uh, you know the the animation process as well as following along with your history going through comics and animation. Oh well, thank you, and I, I enjoyed doing the interview. And, and I don't do that many of them because I don't want to get redundant with people. <laughs> so I, I probably do about one interview a year these days. So you're you're mine for 2018. Oh well, then I'm very honored because uh, I didn't realize you were that exclusive. <laughs> well, uh, again, I think an anecdote that's amusing the first time you hear it is great, and if it's amusing the second time, that's good too. But the third time, I don't think anything's that funny. Sure, no, and I I can definitely understand that, but yeah, I I appreciate that, and uh, I'll let you know when the episode comes out, should be in a couple of weeks. Great, thank you, Nathan. And that ends my interview with Will. Of course, as I was editing this, I thought of about a dozen more questions that I could have asked him, but we were getting long as it was, so I had to cut things short, and of course I skipped the period in the late 80s when he was working on things like the real Ghostbusters and Captain Planet, because I really wanted to get to the 90s stuff, which is my favorite part of his work, but I feel like I did a little bit of it injustice, uh, because even though Captain Planet wasn't a show that I really watched heavily, I know it's something that has uh, a lot of resonance, uh, that's it, it won awards it was an important show when it was on so will if you're listening to this i'm sorry we didn't get to more of your career but if you would ever like to come back on the 42 cast i would love to talk with you some more i think i could easily get another hour-long interview at least even going beyond talking about your work to talking about the things that you like watching like anime and things like that And uh, one note here, uh, I mentioned during the podcast that I was going to put up the Jurassic Park pilot that that Will had worked on uh, in the show notes. Unfortunately, it appears to have been taken down from YouTube. I talked with Will about it. He said that he couldn't find it either. So that isn't in the show notes. Um, I do have Will's author page from Amazon. Uh, I have the uh, X-Men book written by Eric Leewald. I also have the letter that Will wrote to Marvel because I think that that's really neat. So got all that up on the show notes, but didn't get that Jurassic Park pilot on there. So what did all of you think at home? Uh, did you like uh, the interview? Do you like it when I do interviews? Would you rather I do more topic-based podcasts? Do you have an idea for people that I could interview in the future? Uh, if you do, there's a lot of different ways that you can contact me or leave me feedback about just about anything with the podcast. The primary way would be to email me at everything at 42cast.com. You can also contact us through Facebook at facebook.com slash 42cast. You can also tweet to us at at 42cast. You can also leave us feedback on our website, which is 42cast.com, or you can leave reviews on Stitcher Radio or iTunes. We did have a problem with iTunes recently where it was only displaying the most recent 10 episodes of the podcast. So if you had been looking for some of our older stuff and couldn't find it, it should all be there now. We've corrected that problem. We're still having a little bit of a problem with Stitcher Radio where it's not uploading our newest episodes. I've sent an email to them and I'm trying to get that taken care of because right now I think it only goes up to episode 26 and this of course is going to be episode 29. So if you're listening through Stitcher, then you probably 
probably don't know because uh, you're not listening to this episode yet because it's not on there, but if you uh, have been wondering or if you have friends who can't find the latest episode and they use Stitcher, then let them know that that's going on. Uh, I have left a message on our Facebook page as well as on Twitter. Uh, so hopefully you are following us on Twitter or uh, on the Facebook page. So, but if you're not, please do. Um, we always appreciate having more likes and more follows. And of course, uh, spread the podcast through word of mouth or anything like that because uh, we can only grow uh, if you help us. So uh, I'd appreciate any assistance. So please join us back next week when Abigail Spencer will not be joining us. And until then, this is Nathan signing off. You've been listening to the 42 cast copyright 2018. Got a question for the ultimate answer? Contact us at everything at 42 cast.com. Theme music is sharper swords by Brandon Ellis. Check out more of his work at www.cityfires.com. Incidental music is provided with permission by Fur DK. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network, your station for all things geek, classic, current, and beyond. Be part of the crew at esonetwork.com.